The conventional wisdom among education reformers is that large school districts are best understood as local monopolists that can be expected to fight the expansion of school choice options for local families. The nation's fourth largest school district, Miami-Dade Public Schools, is turning that conventional wisdom on its head, or at least proving that there's an exception to every rule. Instead of resisting the forces of choice and competition that are reshaping public education in the state of Florida, longtime superintendent Alberto Carvalho has sought to harness them and to ensure that the district comes out ahead. We're unapologetic, he said, about our desire to dominate choice. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Ron Matus. Ron is Director of Policy and Public Affairs at Step Up for Students, a nonprofit organization that administers school choice scholarship programs in Florida, and a former education reporter for the Tampa Bay Times. He's also the author of the new article, Miami's Choice Tsunami, Carvalho Competition and Transformation in Miami-Dade, which will appear in the winter 2020 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Ron, welcome to the Ednext podcast. Hey, Professor West. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So you describe the Miami-Dade County Public Schools as the most choice-rich district and arguably the most choice-rich state. After reading your article, it seems to me as there's not much to argue about. Why don't you give listeners a sense of the options available to Miami-Dade families and how many of them are taking advantage of those options? Well, I think it's fair to say that in Miami-Dade, more than just about any other district in Florida and, you know, amongst uh, any district anywhere, that choice has really become the new normal. There are 130 charter schools down in Miami-Dade, serve about 70,000 kids, which is about 20% of all the public school kids down there. There are more than 400 private schools that participate in the different choice scholarship programs that we have in Florida. Um, there are tens of thousands of kids. I think it's more than 30,000 kids on scholarship in those private schools. Um, and there are more non-district options coming all the time because in Florida, they really, um, you know, put the pedal to the metal as far as expanding choice and non-district options. So, you know, just in the past few years, we've had two new education savings accounts created down here. We've had a new tax credit scholarship. We've had a new voucher. And so that's kind of the backdrop for what the district is doing. And what makes Miami-Dade special, I think, is that they've responded to that expansion of choice through all those non-district options by really going gangbusters with their own uh, choices, very high-quality, compelling choices. So there are hundreds, literally hundreds of district options. Um, the main thrust of the, the district choice uh, programming are their magnet schools. There are more than 100 magnet schools down there serving about 70,000 kids. Um, and that's uh, easily you know, twice as much as they had a decade ago. And all these options have been expanding over the past 10, 15 years. And so a family down in Miami-Dade would have a choice of all these different options. I mean, they would have charter schools within a few miles of them. They'd have plenty of private schools that are now accessible through these choice scholarships. And then they would have a ton of high-quality district choice options, including magnet schools, career academies, international programs, K-8 to centers. There's a lot of those in Miami-Dade. 
and just goes on and on and on. Choice really has become mainstream in Miami Bay in a way that I have not seen elsewhere. And you make a case in the article that amidst all this activity, student outcomes have been headed in the right direction. What are the most important indicators as you see it? Yeah, there are a number of them. I think just about every um, key academic indicator that most folks would look at are showing rising trend lines. So if you go by the state tests uh, in Florida, you know, um, the, uh, the FCAT prior, now the FSA, you see rising trend lines there, so much so that Miami-Dade is now a leader amongst the big districts in Florida in reading and math according to those test scores. Um, I think the NAEP scores are up considerably, although there's an important caveat that, you know, the uh, eighth grade scores have not gotten near as much traction as the fourth grade scores. Um, they have really good um, advanced placement results. You know, they've been singled out by the College Board multiple times uh, because of uh, the progress on AP tests. Grad rates are up. Uh, on and on. So I, I think just about any indicator you look at, you see good things happening. Now, I want to be careful. I don't, obviously, there's many, many variables, and I'm not sure what exactly in the mix would lead to those rising trend lines. But it's definitely true that there's a number of indicators that are encouraging. And student success is obviously the ultimate bottom line when we think about a superintendent's leadership. But a prerequisite for student success is the ability to maintain political support. And Alberto Carvalho, as superintendent, certainly seems to have been able to do that. Your story opens with a remarkable scene from an emergency meeting of the Miami-Dade School Board when Superintendent Carvalho was publicly contemplating leaving Miami to become chancellor of the New York City public schools. Tell us about that episode and, and what we can learn from it. Sure. Well, um, thank you for bringing it up because it is a remarkable scene. It was a remarkable situation. You know, uh, early in 2018, it appeared that the superintendent was going to go to New York City to be the chancellor there. And the folks in Miami-Dade were alarmed and they pulled out all the stops to try to keep them. And so there was this um, this really big school board meeting, this emergency meeting, where everybody... Uh, you can think of the most diverse group of people that you can think of, you know, from uh, community leaders and business leaders to teachers and students and parents. They all showed up at this meeting and basically begged him to stay because they have that much faith in him. Um, I think they've been, been inspired by his leadership. Uh, I don't think they take what he's brought to Miami-Dade for granted. And I thought that was just... Um, you know, a really revealing glimpse into what's going on down there. You have a very popular superintendent who decided uh, a decade ago to do things differently. Um, and it worked. Uh, in many ways, it worked. I mean, he's probably more popular than ever. I mean, he came in at a tough time. He came in in the middle of the Great Recession. Finances were not good. Uh, academics were not nearly what they are now. And, you know, all the trend lines have been going in the right direction. And he's had um, this tremendous buy-in from the community, so much so that when, when he uh, considered leaving, everybody rallied to get him to stay. And so I thought that said a lot about him and, um, and his leadership. 
The district obviously wouldn't face much real competition from charter schools if those schools weren't of high quality. You note in the article that the largest single source of charter competition comes from a for-profit chain called Academica. Uh, For-profit charters have obviously gotten a bad reputation in some circles. They've been singled out for special criticism from Democratic presidential contenders like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. But your reporting suggests that Academica has played a positive role in Miami-Dade. Tell us more about that organization. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I I didn't think it was possible to really tell the story about the changes in Miami-Dade without talking about Academica. It is a big charter management organization. Um, it has, I think, 130 charter schools in Florida alone that it manages. It now has a few others in four or five other states. And in Miami-Dade alone, it has 60 um, with about you know, 30,000, 35,000 students, which is about half the entire charter sector in Miami-Dade. And, you know, outside the district, Academica is, is the single largest education provider in Miami-Dade. And it's a, it's a very aggressive company. It's been growing by, by leaps and bounds over 20 years. And its results are pretty good. Um, and I think there's something about the for-profit label, you know, that gets in the way of people looking at what obviously to me and many other people is the most important thing, which is the bottom line and whether kids are learning more. And if you go by the, the Credo reports, the um, main networks that uh, Academica manages, and there's four of them down there in Miami-Dade, all have pretty solid numbers. Uh, some of them have really good numbers. And so, you know, here's this operator on the landscape that's really uh, mashing the gas, uh, growing by leaps and bounds, and getting good results. And I think, you know, that is one of the reasons why the district had to do things differently. You know, it was facing competition, not just from charters overall, but from this one particularly aggressive and particularly effective uh, charter management company. So I don't think you can tell the story of Miami-Dade without giving a nod to Academica and its role down there. And when we think about Carvalho's leadership over the past decade in Miami-Dade, uh, obviously it centers around the concept of creating new schools of choice but he's also worked to hold schools and school leaders in particular accountable for their results, in part through a quarterly ritual known as Datacom. What is Datacom and, and what role do you see it playing in the district's improvement? Yeah, Datacom is this quarterly meeting that the superintendent has with his cabinet and the principals of the most uh, fragile schools, you know, the, the, the lowest performing schools. Um, so, you know, the magnets and whatnot, for the most part, they're not part of this datacom. It's, it's, it's aimed at those schools that are still struggling. And they have this ritual so that they can have some really uh, quick evidence-based discussions about what's working and what's not. And if there's a need to change things, if there's a need to 
um, do whatever uh, in terms of resources or personnel or anything, they can decide on the spot to do it. And it's really a, a remarkable thing to witness. I mean, you go into this room and it's, uh, you know, four or five, six hours of the superintendent um, hold, holding court, essentially, um, with all the top leadership of these schools and saying, what's going on? What's working? What does the data show you? What do you need? And if they need something, they tell them and, you know, they quickly make decisions on um, how to move in a dir different direction. And I think it was important to point that out in the story because it's not just choice um, alone that's driving um, accountability and progress in Miami-Dade. They also have, you know, um, they also do accountability this way through, um, through Datacom. Uh, you know, there is a data-driven urgency to what they do down there as well as, um, you know, a need uh, to expand choice. I mean, the, the, the vision of Miami-Dade has both those elements. It's both expanding choice and then doing uh, regulatory accountability in a pretty smart and pretty nimble way, I think. And what comes through in your account of Datacom in the article and even in your remarks about it just now is the flexibility that the district has its leaders to respond in the moment to emerging problems that come out of the conversation around data. I think a lot of districts might listen to that and say, wait, we don't have that same flexibility because of our collective bargaining agreement and the like. So is there something sort of unique about the governance structure in Miami-Dade that makes this approach particularly powerful? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. I, you know, I wish I could have spent more time down there and, and got to the bottom of questions like that. I don't know how um, the district and the union relationship might be different down there than it is in other places. But they do seem to um, have really good working relationships with the union down there, and they're able to move uh, more nimbly and flexibly down there than in a lot of other places I saw as a reporter. Um, I don't know quite how they're able to do it, but they do it. And I think it's really important to highlight that because one of the things that you hear often uh, from districts in Florida is, well, we can't, we can't do things because our hands are tied. You know, there's so many mandates from the state level that we um, are bound by that, and we don't have the flexibility to move quickly. But you don't hear that in Miami-Dade, and you don't see that. They seem to be able to um, own their approach. They seem to have come up with their own vision for change and execute it. And I think it kind of um, – it's interesting to consider because it is so odd so at odds with the common perception about uh, education in Florida, where, you know, you hear often that uh, districts can't do things because they're hamstrung. Well, that doesn't seem to be holding Miami-Dade back. Now, listeners will recognize that you're offering a very positive take on the amount of progress that's been made in Miami-Dade to date, but you also acknowledge in the article that a lot of work remains. What do you see as the main challenges facing the Miami-Dade public schools and their students? 
Well, one of the things that I would say about Miami-Dade is the same thing I would say about about Florida as a whole. And, you know, I've been down here for a while, and, and this is the area I know best. And, and this may be applicable to, you know, other cities and states as well. But, you know, on the one hand, I think there's no doubt that Florida as a whole has made a decent amount of progress over the past 20 years. Um and, I, you know, the Floridian, I'm proud of that. I know a lot of hard work has gone into that. But I pause because even though we've made some, arguably, some of the biggest gains in the nation over the past 20 years, we still have a million miles to go. Uh, you know, for instance, um, I believe we are now number one, Florida is, in our fourth grade uh, reading results on NAEP uh, for low-income kids. But... Even then, only 30% of those low-income kids are proficient. So you're number one, but only 30% of the kids are proficient. You know, we have so far to go. And I would say the same thing about Miami-Dade. I mean, they they are a leader in a state that's a leader. But there are still so many kids who are not finding, you know, the success we all want them to find. Um, in particular, I think, in Miami-Dade, they have not seen the traction in middle grades that they've seen elsewhere. And I, they realize that, you know, they've, they've spent a lot of work over the past couple of years coming up with some strategies to deal with that, which they are now executing on. And uh, it'll be interesting to see whether the things they've put in place do manage to move the needle in the middle grades. But certainly that's, that's one big area that um, I have a question mark about. But ultimately I would, conclude that your article is fundamentally optimistic and optimistic in particular about the ability of traditional public school systems to respond and remain part of the landscape even as the policy landscape changes. You write that, quote, school districts can rise to the occasion in the era of choice and customization and perhaps not only evolve, but lead. Do you think that's the vision that's what we're going to see going forward not just in Miami-Dade but in other places as well I hope so but I don't know I I don't know how much of what's happening in Miami-Dade is easily applied to other districts you know they they have their formula they came up with their plan um I think smartly because they realized what changes were coming um, and they adapted to them accordingly. Now, whether that could happen elsewhere, I, I don't know, but I, I think it does show what's possible. You know, there is, you know, kind of a, a harsh narrative about districts sometimes that they're hidebound, they're resistant to change, they're stuck in their ways, you know, they're stuck in uh, a model of education that's uh, a century or more old. And, you know, you can, you can definitely find examples of, of districts that seem to be uh, immovable. But Miami-Dade is not that. I mean, I think they have clearly changed a lot over the past 10 years. A lot. I mean, they're, they're offering some really wonderful, high-quality programming. And there, there are schools down there that I wish, you know, I had in my backyard in, in, uh, in my school district. Um, but don't. So I don't know. I don't know if you know what's happening down there could happen elsewhere, but I think it's possible. Um, I think it is possible that districts can change, that they can adapt, um, 
and be you know more relevant and more effective and more successful with more kids. I think Miami Dade to this point is showing that to be true. My guest today has been Ron Matus, author of Miami's Choice Tsunami, Carvalho Competition and Transformation in Miami Dade, available now at educationnext.org. Ron, thanks for the article and thanks for being part of the podcast. Hey Marty, thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.